This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 through 12, Matthew 14, 1 through 12, page 820 in the Pew Bibles. We are continuing in a series of studies in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin our reading at uh, Matthew 14, verse 1. Hear the Word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and the guests he commanded to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we stand on sacred ground here because this is your word, and because this passage tells the sad end of a great servant of yours. And Father, we pray that as we study your word, that you would be our teacher, that your spirit would open our eyes, open our ears to hear your word and believe and respond in faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist had responded to the complaints of his followers that more and more people were following Jesus, and fewer and fewer, it seemed, were following John. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The last we heard of John in Matthew's Gospel was back in chapter 11, where we read that John was with a question, are you the one to come or should we wait for someone else? Why would John ask such a question, especially since he himself had introduced Jesus as the Messiah? Well, perhaps the uh, The days passing by in prison had uh, weighed on his spirit, and perhaps he was beginning to wonder, was this what the Messiah would bring? Why am I in prison? And you'll recall Jesus' magnificent response 
to John. He doesn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He, he responds more indirectly, but just as certainly. He said to the disciples, go back and tell your master, tell John, what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. All of those things, the Old Testament prophesied, would be the work of the Messiah. And so Jesus just certainly replied to John, uh, Yes, I am in fact the one you've been waiting for. But why was John in prison? Matthew didn't say back in chapter 11, but we find out here, as Matthew records for us, this story of how John came to be in prison in the first place and the sad way in which he died at the hands of Herod. Now, as we read this passage, we learn something about John here. We learn about the faithful way that he carried out his ministry as a prophet of the true and living God. Prophets in the Old Testament had the responsibility of revealing the word of the Lord, which often involved foretelling events that were to come in the future. In fact, the test of a prophet was that everything that he said regarding the future must be fulfilled, or he was no true prophet. But as you read the Old Testament, you also saw that the work of a faithful prophet of the Lord was, was to confront evil in high places. And John certainly did that here as well. And as with many of his Old Testament prophet forebears, he sealed his witness and his boldness with his own blood. The passage tells us a lot about John, but it actually tells us more about Herod. You see, Herod's problem here ultimately was not John. Herod's problem ultimately was not Herodias or Herodias' daughter. Herod's problem here was himself. Herod's problem is his own sin. And as I studied this passage, I kept trying to identify with John, kept trying to see myself in John, and there's something of that. I think all of us would want to see ourselves as faithful to the Lord and faithful to our callings the way John was to his. But the more I studied this passage the more I came to realize I really have more in common with Herod than I do with John, a rather disquieting realization. And perhaps as we study this passage together, you may come to see that you too have more in common with Herod than with John, or at least more in common with Herod than you would like to think. Because as we look at Herod here as he's portrayed, we see three problems that are common, not just to Herod, but common to a fallen humanity. Herod, in fact, was one of us, one of Adam's fallen race. And the problems that we see here in him, unfortunately, are common to all of us in one degree or another. What do we see here? Well, as we look at Herod in the first place, the first problem we see is that of a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. Look at verses 1 through 4. We see Herod's reaction to Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, this is Herod Antipas, the uh, son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler back in Matthew 2 with the birth of Jesus, the one who was pursuing 
Jesus to put him to death. That was Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod Antipas, uh, not to be confused with his nephew, the Herod in Acts chapter 12, who uh, had James put to death. Well, Herod the Tetrarch, that was his title. Uh, He was informally referred to as a king, but in fact his title was that of Tetrarch. Uh, Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, that is not surprising. Granted, they didn't live in the day of 24-7 media coverage of everything that ever happens on the planet Earth as we do today. But word did spread, and uh, Jesus' base of ministry, as we've seen, was in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Well, Herod's capital city was Tiberias, about eight and a half miles to the south on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, just for point of reference, if you know where my house is, uh, that's about a half mile farther than from here to my house. So for us, that's a very short distance. In a day without uh, automobiles, it was a bit of a longer distance, but word certainly had spread. Herod, being the good paranoid ruler that he was, was always uh, listening out for possible threats to his power, and so word reached him of this phenomenon known as Jesus. But notice his response in verse 2. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why he can do these miraculous powers. That's why all this was at work in him. Now, in Mark's account of this, in Mark chapter 6, he tells us that people, other people were speculating, is just, is just John the Baptist returned from the grave doing these miraculous powers? Uh, some said, well, no, he's Elijah. Others said, no, he's some other prophet. And Herod said, no, this, this is John the Baptist whom I had put to death. Why would Herod say such a thing? Well, what you see here is, is kind of a combination of some orthodox belief with some superstition. Orthodox belief, the, the Pharisees held to the resurrection of the dead. Herod uh, obviously believed in that as a, a real possibility, but it was also mixed with some pagan superstition that saw John had come back and now he has these miraculous powers. But above all, what this represents is a guilty conscience. Herod knew what he had done, and his fear was that John had returned with power to haunt him, had returned with power to get revenge, to dethrone him, to do away with him. And so what is uh, the reason for his guilt? Well, Matthew explains this guilty conscience. It was rooted in his actions, his arrest of John, verses 3 and 4. Here at 4, the, the, the connection there, 4, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, Herod, and by the way, this is recorded in Scripture, but it's also recorded by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who records these things and supplies some other details. Sometimes it's debatable exactly how accurate Josephus is on different things, but what he says certainly corroborates Uh, with what the scriptures say, not that they need corroboration, but they do provide an outsider's point of view, so to speak. But Herod, uh, in a trip to Rome, had become enamored uh, with his sister-in-law. And uh, in fact, she uh, divorced Philip. She became Herod's wife. 
And uh, John had been saying to him, not just once, but repeatedly, it is not lawful for you to have her. It is a violation of God's law in the Old Testament for you to marry this woman. For one thing, she should be married to Philip. For another thing, uh, she's actually uh, married, related to you by marriage, and it is therefore an incestuous thing. Plus, she actually wasn't half-niece. So, um, John was saying, this is wrong. This is sin. You've acted corruptly. You've acted wrongly. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so Herod reveals here a guilty conscience in his fear that Jesus is John the Baptist, returned from the dead to get him. Well, we identify with that. You know what it's like to have a guilty conscience. Uh, We are guilty. Real guilt. Not just guilt feelings, but real guilt before a holy God. We have violated His standards. Whether we feel it or not, we are guilty, but all too often, in fact, we do feel it. Guilt is a normal part of fallen humanity. It's interesting, uh, if you study English literature, how often guilt is a theme that arises, that classic, the scarlet letter uh, by Hawthorne. And actually, a shorter tale he wrote, short story, The Minister's Black Veil, uh, which may uh, refer to guilt. It's left somewhat rather mysterious what the veil was all about. Uh, but perhaps that all-time great classic in the English language about guilt, uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet. You'll recall how Hamlet uh, was visited by a ghost who claimed to be the ghost of his recently murdered father, saying that it was Claudius, his uncle, uh, who had murdered him and had taken the throne and married Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. And Hamlet was skeptical about the word of a ghost and perhaps didn't want to believe that. And so he decided when, some, uh, when a troop of actors came to stage a play that, as part of the play, would depict uh, his father's murder at the hands of his father's brother. And Hamlet is sort of explaining as the play goes along. But what he wants to see is his uncle Claudius's reaction to this scene that depicts what Hamlet thinks took place, what the ghost said took place. And when the murder is depicted, Hamlet's uncle Claudius gets up, obviously in a state of consternation, and leaves the room and confirms to Hamlet that the ghost was telling the truth and confirms his uncle's guilt. Guilty consciences. We may try to suppress them. Romans 1 speaks of how we as fallen people tend to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the truth about who God is, the truth about who we are, the truth about this world in which we live, the truth about our relationships to other people. And yet the truth has a way of coming up. We all know what it's like to be guilty, that uneasy, disquieting, gnawing feeling that wakes us up and disturbs us in the middle of the night. That feeling that makes us look over our shoulder to see if anyone is watching. If anyone knows. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. What's pursuing them? Their guilty conscience. And so in every word from someone else, in every glance from another, we think, does he know? Did she find out? Isn't that a hard feeling, a guilty conscience? And yet that's what's provoked 
When Jesus appears, and Herod sees in him John the Baptist, the one whom he murdered and knew he did it, knew it was wrong, when he heard of Jesus and the work that he was doing. A guilty conscience is something that Herod had, but that's true to fallen humanity. There's also another problem that is referred to here that's common to us all, and that is a fearful heart. Herod was a fearful man. Now you may think, well, he's a mighty ruler. He, he, he's in control. He's powerful. He's mighty. He has servants. He's wealthy. What does he have to fear? Well, basically everything. As we look at the passage, actually Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, that Herod feared John. Because he knew John was a righteous man. He knew he was a holy man. You see, Herod looked at John the Baptist and he saw a man of integrity. He saw a man of truth. He saw a man of conviction. And he was afraid of him. He knew he was a righteous man. He knew he was a holy man. Not only did he fear John, he also feared the people. Look at verse 5. Though he wanted to put him to death, John, to death, He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod was afraid of the very people he ruled. He was afraid of of what he wanted to do because he knew the people held John in high regard, as he did himself. In fact, Mark goes into it a little more detail in Mark 6. And you get a sense that Herod was ambivalent toward John. On the one hand, he respected him for his holiness. He heard him gladly. Uh, Herodias was, was wanting him put to death, but, but uh, Herod actually protected him because he had regard for John. He heard John. And yet at the same time, what John said made him angry. It bothered him. and He wanted to be rid of that, that voice of conscience. And he did want to put him to death, but he didn't. He was torn. He feared John. He feared the people. You know, it's interesting. Later in Matthew's Gospel, we encounter this fear. Uh, Jesus asked the the, uh, the Jews who were confronting him and uh, trying to trick him and test him, uh, what do you say about John's ministry? Was it from heaven or was it from earth? And they they couldn't say from heaven or they'd have to be accountable for having not responded to it. They couldn't say he was just a man and it was just an earthly thing because they, the Jewish leaders, also feared the people who held that John was a prophet. And they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they feared the people who had regard for Jesus. Like them, Herod was a fearful man. We have that in common with him. Do you live in fear? Are you afraid of what this week might hold in store? Are you afraid about what people might think of us? What they might think of you? If you do something or say something, if you stand for something that's right, if you decline to do something that you know is wrong, if you speak of your faith in Christ, you may fear people much more than you really think you do. Herod did. We do too. Instead, the Scripture says we should fear God. Jesus taught us back in chapter 10, don't fear the one who can destroy the body but can't do anything to your soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, fear God, you need fear no man. Fear one, and you don't have to fear the many. But there's a third problem that Herod had, a problem that's common to us all, and that is the problem of weak character. Look at verses 6 through 12. Uh, Herod displays a, a rather distasteful character. On the one hand, he's boastful. 
Look at uh, what he says in verse 6. Herod's birthday came. This is this big day. And there was a party. The daughter of Herodias danced before the company. Now, Herodias' daughter, we know from Josephus, was named Salome. At this point, she was maybe 12, 13, 14, older than 14 years old. And she danced before them. We don't know the nature of that dance, but we do know the nature of the Herods, and it's quite possible this was a rather lascivious dance. But at any rate, after dancing, Herod is feeling magnanimous, and so he promises with an oath, verse 7, to give her whatever she might ask, up to half the kingdom. Well, he's, he's being boastful. He's imitating, actually, the Persian kings of old. Read Esther. You know, what, do I, what could I give you? Up to half the kingdom. Name it, and it's yours. Uh, feeling rather pleased with himself, pleased with where he is, pleased with having his friends around on his birthday before his guests. And so he makes this, this large, generous promise. Whatever you ask, give it to me. So there's a boastful element to his character. He might not have been also just a little drunk. He also displays a wishy-washiness that's unattractive. Look at verse, uh, verse 9, or rather verse 7. Promised, and then verse 8, prompted by her mother, still young enough to go and ask her mother for advice here. Uh, she comes back with what her mother said. Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Go and put him to death and bring the gruesome proof that the deed is done. And that's what she asks. And verse 9 says, The king was sorry, but because of his oaths and the guests, he commanded it to be given. Foolish promise, more foolish in keeping it. He was sorry. The king was sorry. The king, I think Matthew uses that with irony. Because if there's ever a time Herod acted less king-like, it's right here. Because he made this promise, because of the guests that were there, and perhaps not just a little bit because of fear of Herodias, he, knowing it to be wrong, gave the command to do it. That's not wishy-washy. I don't know what he is. Matthew was absolutely right. The king was sorry. He was very sorry because he would not stand for what he knew to be right. And so he had murdered an innocent man to save face, an act he knew it was, knew was wrong, and so passed the last of the Old Testament prophets. You suffer from a weak character. We all do, really, in one sense, as fallen men and women, weak perhaps in different ways. I remember um, years ago in the Tampa General Assembly walking from our hotel and where we had breakfast over to the building where the meeting was, walking with a, a ruling elder from our former, from my former church over in South Carolina. And uh, we were walking along, and he went on down the sidewalk and was going to make this, this corner and go down, and I kind of took off across the grass. And we met up on the other side, and he looked at me and said, Alan Johnson, I'm surprised at you. I said, What? He said, don't you know cutting corners is a sign of weak character? I'm not sure that I've cut one since, because every time I'm tempted to, I think of that comment, and uh, far be it from me to have a weak character, and yet I do. We all do, at least in different ways. Let me ask you this. Do you feel the need to show off and impress others? you do wrong things, things you know are wrong, things that may bother your conscience in order to impress or appease or please your so-called friends? 
You have trouble admitting when you've done or said something that was foolish. In other words, can you acknowledge when you're wrong? All of those, uh, if we see those, and we all do in one way or another at one time or another, are evidences of that weakness, that, uh, that, that shrinkage of character that is a result of the fall. Guilt, fear, weakness, these are things that characterize our sinful and fallen nature, and certainly writ large in Herod, but if we're honest, we admit we see those things in ourselves. But the good news is that God's grace is greater than all of those manifestations of our sinful nature. You see, that nature's power was broken at the cross of Christ. If you're a believer in Christ today, then the Scriptures say that you died with Him. And you have been raised with Him to a new life. You are a new creation in Christ. You are no longer a Herod-like life, although the vestiges remain, but you are a John-like life. You have life with a clear conscience. Not because you're sinless, but because Christ was sinless for you. You have life with no fear of man, because you're growing to fear God only. You have life with strong character because God's Word instructs you in what is right and true and good and beautiful. And God's Spirit empowers you to act on His Word. We tend to identify with Herod, but if you're a Christian, then I hope you have some identification with John as well. And certainly a desire to be more like John in his faithfulness, in his boldness, in his courage. A John-like life. How do we get it? I would suggest to you we get it not by imitating John. I think the clue is found in many places in Scripture, but Acts 4.13 is one of them. How do we become more like John, less like Herod, ultimately more like Christ? Acts 4.13 speaks of the Jewish leaders. says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, the way to a John-like life, a life of faithfulness, a life of courage, a life of boldness, is not to sit down and try to imitate John. It's to walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for John. Thank You for his faithful ministry in pointing people to Christ. Thank You for his humility in being willing to fade, being willing to diminish, even as Jesus' renown grew. Thank You, Lord, for his faithful fulfillment of the calling You placed on his life. Father, as we read this passage, we have to confess all too often we see more of ourselves from Herod and in Herod than we do in John. But Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us in Christ. Help us, Father, to trust in him. Help us to walk with him daily through the means of grace you've given, the word of God and prayer, worship and fellowship with believers, that you would more and more form Christ in us. Lord, that we would be more and more not like John, but like Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.